I'm Howard Chang. I'm a professor at Stanford University and investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. This is the second part of my talk, and I'll be focusing on long non-coding RNAs. The new century brought a major mystery to biologists. With the completion of the Human Genome Project, biologists got busy studying the different kinds of RNAs that get made or transcribed from the genome. And there are classes of RNAs, like this one, where we take the sequence, run into the computer, and we can immediately see that this is a protein-coding gene. They're well-known domains. And we can immediately infer uh, specific functions uh, for the particular protein product. But there are also other transcripts, very abundant and very numerous, that, uh, you know, look quite the same coming off the sequencer. But when you run into the computer, uh, you get a big question mark. And these turn out to be long non-coding RNA genes. These transcripts were also made by RNA polymerase II. They're spliced, sometimes polyadenylated. Yet, their functions were quite mysterious. And so, it led to questions about could they be possibly involved in human diseases or other important traits? And finally, could there be a systematic code to help us understand this new class of sequences? This particular challenge it's really like trying to decode a lost language. And we can learn from history about how that's done. This is the Rosetta Stone, a very important archaeological artifact that was uncovered by Napoleon soldiers uh, from in Egypt. And uh, the language shown here are Egyptian hieroglyphics, common Egyptian, and Greek. Egyptian hieroglyphics were basically a lost language. We can see them on ancient monuments, but people couldn't read them. And this stone was very important because it had the same text three times, once each of these three languages. And by going back and forth between these three versions, people can see that there are certain characters that would show up when certain words are mentioned in the other language. For example, uh, the name Ptolemy would show up uh, with the following hieroglyphics. And by the systematic correspondence, people could work out uh, actually a code of transformation from hieroglyphics to characters that we actually understand. So not only can we read the text on the Rosetta Stone, we can actually read all the text in ancient monuments written hieroglyphics. And this is a very apt analogy, because RNA, uh, like these uh, characters, fold up into complicated shapes. So our task is really to assign form to function and understand their systematic relationships. Uh, this particular field is really undergoing a revolution because of a rapid pace of discovery uh, of RNA genes. We now know that human genome encodes uh, nearly 60,000 long non-coding RNA genes, and I'll use the abbreviation link RNA for long non-coding RNAs. And this includes very classic examples of uh, RNAs that are discovered uh, in the 90s to more recent examples, uh, some of them are shown here, uh, and the Typical examples, or the first known examples, acted on chromatin. But that's by no means their only function. And the approach uh, that my lab has taken has focused on uh, delving into the mechanisms of a select number of long non-coding RNAs, and also developing technologies uh, to help other investigators tackle uh, their favorite link RNA genes. And today I want to talk to you about a very classic link RNA, and that is EXIST, the master regulator of X-chromosome inactivation. Let me remind you that uh, men and women are different, 
and men have an X and a Y chromosome, at least in mammals, and females have two X chromosomes. So to make the gene expression from this uh, second X equivalent to this tiny Y, in uh, mammals, uh, one of the X chromosomes needs to be shut down. And that is done by this long non-coding RNA gene exist. It's transcribed only on one of the X chromosomes. It's 17 kilobases long. And it spreads and coats the inactive X chromosome and somehow induces epigenetic silencing on that chromosome so there's much less gene transcription on the inactive X. Uh, there's a small number of genes that escape X inactivation. And so these escapees define sex differences between men and women in biology and disease. This image on the right here shows in-situ hybridization uh, of exists. You can see that's very unusual because it's strictly in the nucleus and actually just coats that one chromosome that creates a classic cytological structure called the bar body. Each cell uh, in the female body makes a, di- a choice, uh, a random choice, about which X chromosome it wants to shut down. And that has very interesting consequences. For example, in this calico cat, these different patches of color on the fur are a consequence of this random axing activation uh, that's happening in each uh, individual skin cells, which then grow up to make these little patches of clones. So it was long believed that exists would act with protein partners. But these partners have remained elusive for a long time. And um, we approached this question uh, by developing an RNA-directed proteomic approach, which we call CHIRP-MS, uh, CHIRP mass spectrometry. The idea is to basically uh, fix the RNA protein complex in the living cell and then retrieve the specific RNA with complementary oligonucleotides. We can then subject the associated proteins to mass spectrometry. This revealed that exists a 17 kilobase long RNA is associated with 81 proteins. Additional work suggested that 10 of these interactions, proteins, are probably direct RNA protein interactions. The remaining interactions are probably through indirect protein protein interactions. Uh, and so this set of proteins really gave a parts list for all the different jobs that exists has to do, including spreading across the X chromosome, causing gene silencing, and changing the morphology of the chromosome. So how do we figure out which are the key proteins out of this big list of uh, 81 proteins? Here we were aided by some classical genetics. Work from Anton Witz and colleague has shown that a small sequence on exists called the A-repeat that was necessary for gene silencing. So on this 17 KB long RNA, these few hundred bases actually were absolutely required for gene silencing. An A-repeat deletion mutant could still be made, still spread across the chromosome and coded, but it wouldn't silence the genes. So we knew that something very important was probably on the A-repeat. So we perform chirp mass spectrometry on either wild-type cells or on the A-repeat deletion mutant. The bottom graph shows a scatter plot of the uh, peptide counts in our results in the full length on the x-axis or the A-repeat deletion. You can see that everything was on the 45-degree diagonal, exactly the same, except for three proteins whose peptide count falls to zero uh, in the A-repeat deletion. So this showed really that exists RNA was a modularly organized. Different pieces of RNA had different partners. And these three proteins uh, 
likely uh, needed the A repeat for interaction. So now that we've sort of narrowed down the list of interesting candidates, we can further go on to show that by individually knocking down these candidate factors, that this protein called SPEN was uh, very important for gene silencing on the X chromosome. And subsequent work from several other groups independently confirm this result. Uh, SPEN was a factor that was initially described uh, from Drosophila genetics. Uh, it's involved in development, and it had never been implicated in X chromosome inactivation before or link RNA function. But it actually was the perfect candidate. Uh, its protein structure is very suggestive. On the end terminus, there are four professional binding, uh, RNA binding, RRM domains. And on the C terminus, uh, there's a Spock domain uh, that binds to chromatin silencing factors. The plant homologue of SPEN is involved in silencing transposons. They're parasitic DNA elements. Uh, and so this is an ancient protein that's been commandeered to do this job, a mammalian or eutherian-specific job in X-chromosome inactivation. The human SPEN protein, it actually is, it, it associates with a repressor, chromatin repressor complex called the NERD uh, complex, and together with enzymes like histone deacetylase 3, uh, methyl uh, binding domains involved in DNA methylation. And so these are factors that are associated in gene silencing. And I'll refer the, the audience to the talk by David Alice uh, in iBiology on histone deacetylases uh, about uh, chromatin and gene silencing. And finally, we actually subsequently show that the RM domains of SPEN interact directly with the A repeat. Okay, so um, to summarize a, a fairly large body of work, we discover that the set of proteins that interact with exist actually assemble in parts. X chromosome inactivation and exist action happens when embryonic stem cells differentiate. So before that differentiation happens in pluripotent stem cells, one set of factors associate with exist already. With differentiation, a second set of factors, including SPEN, uh, associate with exist, and that completes the reconstitution of the exist protein complex. And we believe that there is a logic to this division of labor of these proteins. This first set of proteins that assembles, including the polycomb complex, they're involved in epigenetic memory, in maintaining the status quo. So if you're an active element, you'll stay active. If you're silent, you'll stay silent. So what is needed to turn a previously active X chromosome into the inactive X is the involvement of factors like SPEN and associated proteins. They will deactivate uh, an active uh, element. And once they're deactivated, you can push those elements into this maintenance module to remember that state and perpetuate the gene silencing. There are specific histone marks associated with each of these steps, uh, which uh, uh, provides a different readout of their activity. It turned out that RNA structure is critical for understanding how it exists, interacts with each of its partners. RNA is a single-stranded, flexible molecule that can base pair with itself and other molecules. And the fundamental unit of RNA structure is the duplex, two strands of RNA base pairing together in a Watson-Crick uh, base pairing uh, interaction. And so we developed a method to track these RNA duplexes in living cells uh, using a chemical called sorolin. And this method is called sorolin analysis of RNA interaction and structure, or PARIS for short. In this method, 
we introduce sorolin, which diffuses into cells, and cross-link the two strands together in the living cell. We can then isolate these, pure, these uh, light joint fragments, ligate the two ends of the RNA together by proximity ligation. Once we remove the sorolin, when we, uh, the two ends are ligated, we can sequence them. And when we sequence, every read gives a single molecule evidence that these two strands were touching each other in the living cell. And then this, this interaction is shown by this kind of arc you see at the bottom. Okay, so the more arcs means there are more interactions. Using this methodology, we could interrogate the uh, structure of exist. So shown at the bottom is sort of the human exist locus is a little bit longer, 19 kb. And there's a series of repeats which will describe in the primary sequence of the exist uh, molecule. But on the top is the secondary structure map. And these are the, the RNA duplexes. And what we discovered is first of all is that there are many long-range interactions that span over uh, base pairing occurring over kilobases. Uh, the um, interactions are modular. You see loops within loops, so there are domains of RNA structure that are revealed. And finally, we see that there are certain regions that can adopt several different structures. They're called alternate structures. We see one base interacting with this and other base. That can't happen at the same time, so these are alternate structures. Okay. Uh, this provide this proved to be quite important for understanding uh, an RNA like exists. For example, the A repeat. The A repeat derives its name because a, the same sequence repeats itself uh, eight and a half times uh, in uh, the, the exist sequence. And so there have been a number of computational and biochemical approaches trying to look at the A repeat structure. But because you have these repeating identical units, uh, these one-dimensional methods will give sort of multiple equivalent solutions. And therefore, we need a two-dimensional method like Paris to help us resolve uh, that kind of pa paradox. And so here's what the Paris structure showed. And each arc, again, is one of these duplex maps that were detected in the living cell. And it showed, really, that the A-repeat uh, region uh, folds up as follows. Basically, the unit of interaction is the, uh, it's basically the inter, it's between du uh, repeats it's the inter-repeat duplex that is staggered. Okay, so repeat one interacts with repeat two, three reaches over to five, and four over to eight, and that corresponds to this big arc over here, and then uh, six again to seven. When spend binds, the interaction surface, the cross-linking side, is exactly at the junction of the two duplexes between the single and the double-stranded regions, and here is a, uh, and there are four of these. And here's what a single unit would look like. The red color is a single copy of the, of the AREP, one here, and then the second one, again, uh, here. Okay? And the asterisk mark is the, uh, uh, is the interaction sign. So the stagger duplex is the unit of interaction. Okay. Let's turn now and look at the chromatin consequences of this linked RNA action. So when we think about protein coding genes or disease genes, we think about the coding sequence. But for each gene, there are DNA elements, switches, that decide when and where this gene turns on and off. And these uh, elements are the binding sites of protein-based transcription factors and of regulatory RNAs. Uh, in the human genome, the pattern actually looks more like this. Just 2% of the real state is protein coding, and the vast majority of the 
intergenic region is actually this non-coding space with potentially many DNA regulatory elements. We also know that uh, most of the disease variants associated with human disease occur in this non-coding space. To interrogate the non-coding genome, uh, it's important to remember that uh, in every human cell, two meters of DNA is packed into a 10-micron nucleus. Most of your DNA is highly wound up, not accessible, not available to the cell's machinery. Only the active elements can be read. And simply finding those accessible elements give us a lot of information about uh, the gene regulatory program in the cell. Several years ago, my colleague Will Greenleaf and I at Stanford developed this methodology called ATAC-seq, assay of transposase accessible chromatin. It uses an enzyme uh, which copies and pastes DNA, and we've loaded into this enzyme already DNA sequences that go onto our sequencing machine. When this enzyme reacts with eukaryotic chromatin, it can only copy and paste into the open chromatin sites, but not the compacted elements. And therefore, in a single step, you selectively and covalently tag their accessible elements uh, of interest. You can then amplify and sequence. Uh, and this method led to a, a pretty amazing a million-fold improvement in the sensitivity and a hundred-fold improvement in the speed of mapping regulatory landscape uh, uh, in, uh, in biology. Uh, for the uh, interested uh, uh, audience, uh, I refer you to the part one of my talk on epigenomic technologies, where we delve more into this particular uh, technology. But in the context of EXIST, we can use this technology to ask, how does EXIST silence one chromosome but not the other in the same nucleus? To do that, we have to use some genetic tricks to follow uh, cells from, um, uh, let's say, an animal model, where the chromosome from mom and the chromosome from dad have sequence differences. So in a so-called hybrid animal, we can do an allele-specific mapping. Once we see accessible elements, we can also look at those sequence differences to ask, is it coming from the mom chromosome or the dad chromosome? And this showed us that on the X chromosome, which is shown uh, from left to right here, okay, the, ad, the active X has lots of accessible elements. Uh, these include the genes and their associated ele uh, regulatory elements. But the inactive X has largely lost this accessibility, except for the genes that escape X inactivation. Okay, that includes EXIST itself and a few other genes that are highlighted here. And we further discover that when genes escape X, X inactivation, it's not the entire gene in, in its regulatory unit. It's just the promoter, but not the long-range distal enhancers that escape X inactivation. So the promoter is actually the, the unit that decides how escape happens, what makes men and women potentially different. Okay. And we always have the ambition of not only just knowing which elements are being controlled, active or not active, accessible or not accessible, but to know their spatial organization within the three-dimensional context of the cell. And this involved a further innovation in that technology, which we call ATTACK-C. So I told you that ATTACK-Seq is basically spray-painting the genome with DNA adapters. What we decided we could do is that we can actually add a little fluorophore. Basically, is a fluorescent molecule at the end of the DNA adapter. And once we spray-paint the cell, we can actually image the pattern of accessible elements in C2, and then afterwards, a sequence, uh, figure out what are the elements that we've been imaging. So attack C, basically, is a very easy way to remember, like you're seeing with your eyes. Okay? 
So the next image is an example of an attack C uh, of a, a cancer cell. The red colors attack C, the accessible elements. The blue color is DAPI, all the DNA. So I want you to notice that the, uh, the, the, the accessible sites doesn't just fill up the entire nucleus. It's not homogeneous. There are actually regions that are more accessible than other ones that are not and are dark uh, in the red channel. I show you that there's very specific organization. So now we can revisit the question of exon activation with this lens, with this viewpoint. And um, on the bottom is what I've shown you before already with attack seek, active X chromosome, loss of accessible sites, inactive X, loss of accessible sites. But on attack C now in the green color, we can see that in fact the inactive X is actually focused. The red color is the exist RNA. Okay, so you see that the exist everywhere the exist RNA is. There is a black hole of accessibility. Uh, I'm going to toggle to this uh, other view so you can see that basically if you go back and forth, that really every place this red color is, the RNA is gone. Okay, and furthermore, uh, that the RNA and the black hole has moved to the edge of the nucleus, which they, where the inactive X chromosome typically resides. So this tells us that in fact. Uh, this RNA has local, has organized a local three-dimensional chromatin structure and basically pulled the inactive X into that uh, sort of nuclear location. Finally, we can gain some insight into the evolutionary origin, the potential origin of this powerful long non-coding RNA. I told you about SPEN, the critical partner for gene silencing for EXIST. And what we discovered is that when we remove SPEN, knock it out, and now look at autosomes, all the other chromosomes besides X. There are actually hundreds of DNA elements that become accessible, become active. And nearly half of these elements are a particular class of endogenous retroviruses called IRVK. These are ancient parasites, viruses that have infected, invaded into mammalian genomes, and then spread and copy themselves. And we discovered that SPEN is actually part of this virus-fighting machinery. It recognizes an RNA from the virus, and it basically tries to shut it down by epigenetically silencing it by chromatin modification. This is a very interesting finding because this little sequence from the IRVK that attracts SPEN turns out to be quite similar to the sequence of the AVP that I've been telling you about. It was recognized in 2008 that exists evolved from a series of transposon IRV integrating into the locus. And then the sequence of the AREP shown in red is quite similar to the, the IRVs that are being targeted by SPEN on autosomes. So this led us to a, a model then that, in fact, uh, SPEN RNA interaction is an ancient and sort of conserved feature. And when an ancient virus jump into exists on the X chromosome, a proto exists. This endowed that sequence with the capacity to attract SPEN, a powerful epigenetic machinery. When this sequence is subsequently amplified and mobilized, it repurposed this link RNA into the, this powerful machine for silencing an entire chromosome. And so therefore, this leads to a hypothesis of X activation by viral mimicry. In effect, the female cell treats the inactive X like a big heap of viruses. The female cells pretend that there's a raging viral infection 
going on on the inactive X chromosome, you can then recruit this very powerful machinery to shut that down chromosome to accomplish the goal of dosage compensation. Therefore, in summary, I've told you about long non-coding RNAs and chromatin. And this uh, sketch by M.C. Escher showing the two hands drawing each other is a very apt analogy. Because we think that RNA and chromatin, this, these two polymers basically template each other. The information is copied from one backward to the other. And furthermore, like these two hands, we like to think that the link RNA could be a driver of evolutionary innovation in gene regulation. 